In his book, Good to Great, Jim Collins talks about what he uh, describes as the Stockdale Paradox. Admiral Jim Stockdale was the highest ranking U.S. military officer in the Hanoi Hilton prisoner of war camp during the Vietnam War. He was tortured 20 times during his eight-year imprisonment from 1965 to 1973. When asked who of the other imprisoned soldiers didn't make it out, he responded, oh, that's easy, the optimists. Explaining, he added, the optimists, they were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas, and Christmas would come, and Christmas would go. Then they'd say, we'll be out by Easter, and Easter would come, and Easter would go, and then by Thanksgiving, and then it would be Christmas again and they died of a broken heart. He says, this is a very important lesson. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with a discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. The Stockdale paradox that those who are optimistic but not realistic, tends to fail, haunts all of us. And it's our aim in these next few weeks to to deal with that and to be uh, realistic and optimistic that we will ultimately prevail. It is not the presence or absence of difficulty, but how they deal with it, the inevitable difficulties of life that makes someone succeed or not. In wrestling with life's challenges, Colin says, the Stockdale paradox that you must retain faith that you will prevail in the end, but also confront the brutal facts of your current reality, has proved powerful for coming back from difficulties when um, you're weakened, but coming back not weaker, but stronger. And so... Collins applies this by telling business leaders that they need to face the brutal facts. So what is it that will help us face the brutal facts? What will help us to relate to reality? I want to suggest that lament will. Lament helps us be realistic as we trust in God. And so these next few weeks, we'll slow down to talk about lament in the hope that we can accept life as it comes, not as we hope it will be. We lament as a way of facing the brutal facts as they relate to the God of the Bible. We want to grow in our ability to endure an imperfect world as we embrace the perfect King of Kings. So what are we talking about when we talk about lament? Lament, from which the book of Lamentations gets its name, is a believing response to pain. Bruce Waltke says this, Ultimately, lament expresses the deepest trust in God, or it can wholly reject God. Lament then becomes a spiritual experience of trustful humility, or the defiance of God in pride. Biblical lament is prayer. Secular complaint collapses into meaninglessness. Lament, then, is a believing response to pain. It focuses on God. 
We lament to build trustful humility. We'll focus on the book of Lamentations so that we can collect tools that will help us hold on to God in faith even when our circumstances scream, let it go. We will refuse to be secular in our complaint. Again, Bruce Waltke sets lament in a relational context. He says, lament is a corollary of right-relatedness. Since to lament is to express impaired or disrupted relationships. Its intensity is greatest when it is before and about God. In this sense, a secular culture cannot lament. For when truth is relative, contingent, meaningless, and anything goes, then there is no basis for biblical lament. Rather, righteousness, order, and lament are set antithetically as our light and darkness. Lament, then, represents pain or confusion or disagreement or disruption in our relationship with God. What do we need to do, then, to relate to God in the right way when the world is all wrong? How might we lament what is wrong without giving in to the doubts and fears that overwhelm us and draw us away from God? We'll attempt to answer these questions in the book of Lamentations. I want to invite you to turn there in your Bibles, if you would. Lamentations is just a little bit past the middle of your Bibles. And it's only got five chapters, so it may take you a minute to find it. But we're going to attempt to answer questions about how you stay right with God when the world is wrong by, by looking in this book of Lamentations. And in it, we're going to trace four themes. The first theme, the one we're dealing with this morning, is simply this. Deal with reality. Face the brutal facts. The second is, register your complaint. It is a fine line to walk, to be able to complain to the sovereign king of the universe appropriately. But that's one of the things this book teaches us. The third theme is to turn to God and to make your request. The difference between the secular response to pain and a Christian response is that one turns away from God and the other turns toward God. And we'll find the book of Lamentations turns toward God. Then the fourth theme is to commit to praise God anyway. Seldom does any response, even a right response, just up and eliminate the suffering. When you face reality, complain, and turn to God, what do you do when it still doesn't get better? You commit to praise God anyway. So today we're looking at the first of these four themes. We're going to deal with reality and face the brutal facts. After all, facing reality is the only way that your faith can be real. Your faith is only real when you face reality. And so what did the brutal facts look like when this book of Lamentations was written? What was the reality that gave birth to these Lamentations? Lamentations was written after the fall of Jerusalem in the year 586 B.C. Now that may not mean very much, 
But it might be helpful to take a quick survey of why someone might lament that. In Genesis 12, a man named Abraham was promised by God a a seed, a blessing, and a land. And after years in slavery in Egypt, they went wandering around the wilderness, and finally they moved in to the land with the law and the covenant in hand. A few hundred years later, David subdued Jerusalem and established it as the capital of Israel. He too enjoyed a promise and a covenant that his son would always sit on the throne of Israel. His son Solomon built a temple in Jerusalem. This temple, like the tabernacle before, became God's home on earth, the very dwelling place of God himself. If people wanted to encounter God, they would come to Jerusalem. They would offer sacrifices. They would worship at the temple. Yahweh, Israel's God, lived in Jerusalem, you could say. A series of unfaithful kings led to the northern half of the kingdom being captured and carried away by the Assyrians. The land no longer belonged to Israel as it once did. Years later, the southern half of the kingdom fell to the Babylonians. They sacked Jerusalem. They laid ruin to the temple. Not only did Israel no longer possess their land, they no longer had a temple. They no longer had a God that they could call their own. Lamentations is an attempt to come to terms with the devastation of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. The unfaithful, idolatrous kings sought other gods. They built high places to worship them. They invited the foreign gods to be the God of Israel. And now the foreign gods had empowered armies to invade and overrun the temple of the God of Israel. Not only was their physical home in ruin, but all of the promises of Yahweh upon which their nation was built were called into question. Clearly, when their home was decimated, they had a physical problem. But that was small in comparison to the size of their spiritual problem. They had denied reality for a long time. The reality was that Yahweh was real. He had made a conditional covenant with them, and they willfully violated his covenant. They did not believe that he really meant what he said. They denied reality. For years they had doubted the character of God. They thought he was against them. They were unsure whether he acted with evil intent, or maybe that's why they were suffering. Some, I imagine, thought that he hated them. He promised them the land and now he wasn't keeping his promises, or so they thought. I'm sure, too, that they, they doubted his ability, that God was unable to stop the Babylonians. Their gods were too strong for him. There was nothing that God could have done about it, or so they surmised. They doubted reality. The reality, though, is that the destruction of Jerusalem is God keeping his promises. And they need to come to grips with reality. If God had neglected judgment, he would have neglected his side of the covenant. He would be no better than they were breaking covenant. His apathy would have been worse than his judgment. So let's take a look at this reality and how they come to grips with it in the book of Lamentations. 
And I suppose before we look at the words of lament here, it would help to survey the structure of the book just a little bit. The book of Lamentations has five dirges or laments represented by these five chapters. All of these chapters are written as an acrostic or an ABC poem. Some would suggest that these ABCs were written as a way to serve as a memory device. And that may be true. Uh, It is with some of the Psalms and other places where you see this device. But it seems to me that the content here is something the author would love to forget, not to remember. My chief observation about the structure of the acrostic or the ABCs is really how premeditated they are. This is not a spontaneous lament, but one that has been brooded over for some time. They are deliberate expressions of theological sorrow. The other fact about the acrostic that's not, is that it's not necessarily linear in its thought. It doesn't go from A straight to Z, you might say. So so think about this. Think about your own poetic ability here. Suppose you were right to write an ABC poem about how you love your spouse or something like that. So if I was going to write one about Marcia, I might say that I love her A, her attitude. And I love her B, her beautiful eyes. And I love her C, her compassion. Okay, you will notice, right, that I'm only three letters in, and each of those three letters have very little to do with the other letters. In other words, I'm not really linear in the way that I'm thinking about it. I'm all over the place. Lamentations is a bit like that, too. Though the writer has more skill than I do in this. But that's part of the reason that we're going to go through Lamentations thematically rather than just verse by verse because it is hard to make an argument here in the middle of this poetry. So let's take a look at what is here. Look at Lamentations chapter 1, verse 1. How lonely sits the city. It was full of people. How lonely sits the city. This is one of the great opening lines of all time, I think. Like Tolstoy and Anna Karenina. He says, all happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Or maybe take uh, Charles Dickens in The Tale of Two Cities. You're familiar with that one. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was a season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was a spring of hope. It was a winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. And so here, lonely sits the city. The lament begins with a picture of a city as barren and windswept, forsaken. If you have in mind a scene from an old Western movie where the tumbleweeds are blowing through the streets, you'd 
probably be on the right track. Then he continues, how like a widow she has become. She who is great among the nations. The city of Jerusalem was great among the nations and the descriptions of Jerusalem are actually legendary. In 1 Kings uh, chapter 10, talks about what it was like in Solomon's day. It says, All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. None were silver. Silver was not considered anything in the days of Solomon. And again, it says, The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone, and he made cedar as plentiful as sycamores. Yes, this legendary city had become desolate. She who was a princess among the provinces became a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. One of the key devices in helping us absorb this pain is called personification. The city is like a person, specifically a widow. And the city does what people do. It weeps bitterly. Literally, uh, it would translate, he, she is weeping with weeping. The tears are staining her cheeks. Her friends do her no good and her former alliances leave her alone. In verse 3, Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. Exile and servitude are the orders of the day. Who would sign up for this? Who would say, this is exactly what I want? Nobody. She is in distress and there is no one to help her. And so what is left to do? Lament. Verse 4. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. The city sits, the roads mourn, the gates are desolate. The personification of this disaster breaks our hearts. These are the brutal facts. Verse 5, her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away captives before the foe. This affliction, this captivity is devastating. In verse 8, Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore, she became filthy. All who honor her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. The guilt of sin here is central. The transgressions are the reason for this calamity. But beyond the guilt, add shame. Not only... Has Jerusalem fallen? 
Not only are the remaining inhabitants sad, they are embarrassed. The people of God, those who are faithful especially, are put to shame. They lament not just the fact of Jerusalem's destruction, but the shame that it brought on them and the reputation of Yahweh. Then again in verse 18, The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. The brutal facts are that God is right to judge because they have rebelled against his word. The fact the Lord is bringing judgment is proof that he is committed to his word and the covenant he made with his people. This is what he promised long ago. Then in chapter 2, verse 1, How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. Their sin has invited God's anger. And that's the brutal fact that needs to be acknowledged and lamented. The splendor of Israel has been cast into the dust. There's every reason for sadness when we look at what is really here. Then chapter 2, verse 15. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss, they wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty? The joy of all the earth? The writer's not pulling this from nowhere. He knows the scriptures and he's quoting scripture. He's quoting Psalm 48, which says, Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion, in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. I mean, that's all great until it's not great anymore. It's great to belong to Yahweh. It is awful to rebel against Yahweh. Then in chapter 4, verse 1, how the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold. How they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. They are, there are personal and corporate reasons to lament here. They have physical and spiritual brutal facts to acknowledge and lament. In addition here, he suggests they have economic reasons to lament. The gold around them has become as worthless as stones, and their noblemen have become like just broken pots. And so I want to go back to the main idea here. The writer is facing reality, and your faith, is real only as it deals with reality. We must face the brutal facts. 
We cannot ignore the brokenness of the world around us. We can wish for it to be different, but we must deal with it as it is. Pretending has no place in gospel belief. One of the reasons that we're starting here with the brutal facts and lamentations is that it is human nature to avoid reality. The classic work from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross on death and dying tells us the first stage of grief is denial. And working through these stages of grief is the only way through. You can't go around them or ignore them. If you ignore or withdraw from the truth, we will experience a wave of subconscious anger that percolates underneath our awareness. We'll experience some subterranean anxiety that we don't understand that may cause us to lose sleep or lash out or surprise us when it appears. Eugene Peterson writes this. He said, The task of pastoral work is to comfort without in any way avoiding the human realities of guilt or denying the divine realities of judgment. There is no better place for learning how to do that than in lamentations. In the midst of suffering, lamentations keeps attention on the God who loves his people so that the judgment does not become impersonal, nor the guilt neurotic nor the misfortune merely general. It pays attention to the exact ways in which suffering takes place. It takes with absolute seriousness the feelings that follow in the wake of judgment. And then it shapes these sufferings and feelings into forms of response to God. Pain thus becomes accessible to compassion. Well, if that's what the brutal facts looked like in Jerusalem, this windswept tumbleweed going through the city, what does our reality look like? The events of the past few weeks help us further focus our lament. The beauty of this book is not the general sadness, but the specific concern for maintaining a right relationship with Yahweh. Lament goes beyond general sadness. It goes beyond even specific sadness to this relationship with Yahweh. You'll, you'll get this when I say it this way. You can lament that the Oregon Ducks got rolled by Iowa State in a bowl game last week. But somehow you know that's not worthy of biblical lament. You know, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something that affects God's covenant people being rightly related to him. We are not looking at lamentations simply to bemoan what has happened in Washington, D.C. in the past several months or in the past few days. We are not lamenting because of our disagreements with our governor. While we cannot ignore it, we have to be clear about how our relationship with God fits in. What about our relationship with God do we lament? 
you are welcome to mourn what has happened in Washington, D.C. this week. You can be sad for our government and our place in the world. When you do, I want to encourage you to go beyond that into biblical lament. Biblical lament must focus on how Washington, D.C. relates to the God of the Bible and how the events of this week reflect on his reputation. Because what happened in Washington, D.C. this week is not parallel to what happened in Jerusalem. Israel was God's covenant people. God has no such covenant with America. I happen to love America and love living here, but God's relationship to America is very different than his relationship to ancient Israel. We can be sad for our country. We can even miss the country that we used to know. But our lament for the shameful actions of some this week is not in any way the same as Israel's. We are not trying to figure out if God's covenant promises are still good. We don't have an existential crisis that the God who made a covenant with us has forsaken us. God does not have the contract with America and has not promised our country anything like he did with ancient Israel. That's why they are lamenting. So how do we lament? Well, I do have to say that what has happened this week is lamentable. The Jesus is my Savior, Trump is my President signs we saw on TV are a clear indication that some who claim to belong to Jesus are really hoping in a different hero than Jesus. And that is lamentable. Biblical lament focuses on being rightly related to God. So how does the chaos in the capital connect to God's cause in the world? I think it betrays that the church is trusting something besides God for their hope. This is the very idolatry that the kings of Israel committed before the destruction of Jerusalem prompting the book of Lamentations to be written. This is not new. There have been things to lament during the entire history of our country, even the entire history of the church. I mean, think about it. When were the good old days? They weren't in the Obama administration or in the Reagan administration. They weren't in the 50s or in colonial America. They were before humanity rebelled against God in the garden. Between the Garden of Eden and the New Jerusalem, there is plenty to lament. We lament because our world is broken and it has no answers for its own brokenness. We live in a world that doesn't match the design of its creator. Our lament is for the reality of God in relation to his order, his creation, his justice, his kingdom. And we want to be able to look at the news and lament the broken relationship 
that we have with the God of the Bible, regardless of what happens with the government. There are so many ways to avoid reality, to, to stop and uh, not face the brutal facts. We deny reality by saying we're fine when we're really not. That's what Kuba Ross was talking about in her book. We ignore the brutal facts when we ignore what God says or we don't believe what he says. And when we do this, we're just like the kings of Israel. We ignore reality when we medicate our emotional pain, thinking it will go away when all we've done is masked it for a short time. We've got the same problem when we expect an idol to solve our problems. How many people think that a job will ultimately fulfill them or that their children will give them a slice of immorality or that marriage or sex will make them happy or that money can buy permanent relief? I am concerned that we are not going to be healthy if we simply say, 2020 is over and I'm going to forget it. Because you can't forget it and you can't ignore the hard things that you've been through. And so what if you did a full court press on your heart's tendency to avoid reality? What if you audit your days and take stock of what is true and what isn't? Maybe pull out a journal and process these hurts. Process, though, how they relate to God. And don't be afraid to shed a few tears. What if we look back over 2020 and rather than claiming we're fine, we made a list of the losses that we experienced. We took inventory of the ways that we think God has disappointed us. We're going to get to the topic of complaint next week, but until we face the brutal facts, we won't know what we should complain about or even how we ought to complain. I do have to say, God has never been one to ignore the brutal facts. God is a God of reality. God faced the brutal facts of human rebellion and sin. He didn't just acknowledge them. He stepped into all the pain that they caused. He sent his son to engage it so deeply that he himself lamented, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus did that because he loves you. Because God is pursuing that right relationship with you based on reality. My hope and prayer is that you will face reality too and that you will find Jesus to be the answer to your lament because God sent Jesus to be with us. The reality is that Jesus loves us, that Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart. And so I invite you to turn to Jesus 
to trust Him when the brutal facts are brought on by your own action, lament is the first step in repentance. To believe in God enough and desire relationship with Him enough to turn from your sin and trust the work of Jesus on the cross, that's the way you get rightly related to God. And this lament that we're talking about, lament then is at the heart of relating to God in the right way because it causes us to face the brutal facts of our own sin and rebellion, to face the brutal facts of God's judgment on that sin that we will ultimately one day take or else we'll be taken by Jesus. And so I, for one, I'm grateful that at the heart of my lament is the heart of God who has compassion on his children, hears their laments, and has sent his son to intercept them. Will you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, there is so much for us to be brokenhearted about in this world. We don't understand the way that you work. We don't know whether we perceive your judgment or whether we perceive people's uh, rebellion. And we don't know what to do with it. And so we come to you and lament. Father, we don't just turn the other way. But rather we express to you our pain, our frustration, our disappointment our inability even to understand you. And God, we want to start there and ask that you would use our um, attempt to deal with reality as a means of helping us to relate rightly to you. So God, would you set us on the right path, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.